This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the Evan Roberts Podcast Instant Reaction Money in the Bank 2020. I think the first thing that jumps out at everybody is that it ended at 925. I mean, we're certainly not used to that with WWE pay-per-views. Now, I have two theories right out of the gate on why that happened. Number one, the last dance. They they know they are competing with something that so many people are watching. And I think a lot of people in the demographic is watching. I mean, it took me a lot, I got to admit, to not start it on time. Like, I haven't started the last dance. I'll start it as soon as this podcast is over. No big deal. I'll finish it, you know, 30 minutes later, 35 minutes later. But even that was painful to do because I'm like everyone else excited about every aspect of this 10-part documentary. So I'm thinking they thought, hey, if we can start the main event at 8.50, which is when they did before the documentary starts, maybe we'll have a few eyeballs that'll stick with us. They'll start the Jordan stuff a little bit late. And then we can get the hell out of town. That's theory number one. And theory number two is they realize with the type of wrestling they're giving you and the type of show they're giving you, three hours, three plus hours is way too much. I mean, the only reason they're doing it on Raw is because they're obligated to. And so because this show was only about two and a half hours, forget the pre-show, nobody watches it. Because the show was only two and a half hours, it wasn't that bad. I got to tell you, right off the gate, I feel fresh. I feel okay about it. The main event, I can see people hating it. I could see people thinking it's garbage. I'm okay with it. There were parts of it that was entertaining. There were parts of it that were sort of funny. But what I appreciated about it is that it is difficult to keep people entertained with an empty arena. It's not even an arena. An empty gym, the performance center where you hear so much, where it just doesn't feel like WWE and pro wrestling, it's tough to do a whole show like that for three hours, or in this case, two and a half hours. And so what we saw at WrestleMania in the first of these big events without crowds is they give you that specially produced segment or match. We saw it with Undertaker AJ Styles. We obviously saw it with John Cena Bray Wyatt. You know my view on it. I didn't like the Taker stuff. I loved the Bray Wyatt, Fiend, John Cena thing. This one's more of in the middle to me. It's more in the middle. I appreciate the creativity of it. I thought there were some funny moments, but it just didn't give you a lot of wrestling. I mean, if you're looking for big spots, which you're accustomed to in a Money in the Bank match, you just didn't get it. And anytime they did give you a big spot off a ladder towards the end when they got to the top of the building... They gave you that aerial view where you barely saw it happen. And and even then, you didn't get much. You know, if you're looking for that traditional money in the bank, you know, crazy spots. Oh, my God, I've never seen this before. You just didn't get it. I mean, nobody's going nuts over the illusion that I think it was Rey Mysterio Jr. and Aleister Black got thrown over the building. You know, we knew something like that would happen but they weren't really thrown off the building. 
I mean, obviously. <laughs> so nobody's given you a holy S moment from that. It isn't exactly Mick Foley falling off the top of the cage. So it didn't give you a lot of wrestling. It gave you a lot of bits, you know, little bits here and there. You got the brother love cameo in the bathroom. You had Dana Brooke grabbing the briefcase, which looked like it had real money in, by the way. I was thinking she should open it, take the cash. But, you know, she opens up the briefcase in the conference room, so you get the cameo from Stephanie McMahon, the Paul Heyman thing, which I got to admit, that part was lame. You know, we see Paul Heyman all the time. It's not that exciting to see Paul Heyman in a cameo. There's a bunch of food there. As soon as you see Heyman with the food, you all know it's going to become a food fight. You know it's going to be something dopey like that. You got the John Laronitis cameo. That was okay. Then you had the Vince thing. You know, so Vin, and I think this jumped out at everybody, I'm sure. The fact that in Vince McMahon's office, he had like dinosaur bones hanging up. Yeah, so that was kind of cool. That was all right. You know, a little bit of a chuckle. A little bit of a, hey, that's kind of all right. The only thing that did bother me a little bit about that is growing up in the Attitude Era, and even after that, in the mid-2000s, everybody would, you know, use their finishing move on Vince McMahon. Obviously, it started with Austin, but everybody would stand up to the boss. It was the cool thing to do. Screw you, Vince McMahon. I'm going to punch you in the face. Screw you, Vince McMahon. I'm going to rock bottom you. And here you've got AJ Styles and Daniel Bryan, two guys that are Hall of Famers, two all-time greats, two champions, two guys worthy of winning the briefcase, and they're both, oh, Vince McMahon. Oh, my God, it's Vince McMahon. Why? Because he's a senior citizen? You know, well, what's what's the backing off here? You know, and they're you know, pushing the, the chairs in. It was just, I don't know. It was a little bit over the top. But that was, overall, was kind of funny. As far as the conclusions and the endings of it, I'm all in favor of Asuka winning. She's the right person to win. I think she's a very appealing character right now. She probably gave you the best spot of the night, which opened up that women's portion of it, where she jumped off the money in the bank sign. I didn't understand why she and Corbin are fighting at the top of the ladder, considering they're both looking for different briefcases. So uh, that part didn't make sense. But I think they got the winner right with Asuka. On the men's side going in, and I don't know how everybody looked at this, you've got a lot of options on how you could have went with this ending. Alistair Black is clearly a guy getting a major push. AJ Styles, you want him to bounce back from the whole Undertaker thing. Brian's a star, but are you really going to put it on Daniel Bryan? Are you going to give a face like Brian the briefcase? There's no way they were giving it to Baron Corbin. No way. I I think Corbin is there. He's a heel. People hate him. But to me, I was never even concerned going in that they were going to hand the briefcase to Baron Corbin. And Rey Mysterio wasn't winning. I never thought for a second Otis was in line to win this thing. And I got to tell you about Otis winning. Two things. Number one, there is not a ounce of me that thinks Otis is going to remain the winner in this. No way, no how. It was a weird, funky ending. Another example of the WWE kind of recreating the rules as they happen, where you've got AJ and Corbin grabbing the briefcase at the same time. Fine. You want to say no one has possession of it? Okay. Elias hits Corbin in the back with the chair and now AJ has the briefcase. I understand he, he bobbled it, but he had it in his hands. Now all of a sudden, it falls into the hands of uh, Otis. I'm sure they had to tape that 15 times, by the way, because this was clearly pre-recorded. I think we all knew that. 
And then Michael call us to quickly explain, oh, you know, Otis has possession of it. What is this, a catch in the NFL? Since when did this happen? So I am a believer, and maybe I'm just being hopeful, I am a believer that this controversy, you know, because it is a controversy of did AJ have possession of the briefcase as he fumbles it into the hands of Otis, I believe it will lead into some kind of program between the two of them. Now, if I'm not mistaken, they are both on the same show, right? Isn't AJ on SmackDown or is he on Raw? I I have a headache. I don't even know where he is. Either way, (laughs) I got to tell you, I think like most people, I've watched Raw and SmackDown, but I haven't really watched it, if you know what I mean. It's there. I DVR it. I go through it. But it all runs together. So I, I got to tell you, in this moment, I don't even know what show AJ's on. The only reason I know Otis is on SmackDown is because he did the whole love thing with what's-her-name, with Mandy. But I would think that this controversy leads to either AJ getting the briefcase or, yeah, put it this way, I don't know where it ends up. I assume it ends up with AJ getting the briefcase. Otis is not cashing it. Otis is not turning this into a title match. I think this controversy buys him a little bit of programming time and the briefcase briefcase ends up with somebody else. And normally, if this was a normal wrestling universe that we were living in, not the, you know, apocalyptic world we live in right now where there is no sports and there are no crowds, and obviously we're dealing with a hell of a lot more than that, I would probably be more annoyed by the ending of this show. But instead, I just kind of chuckled. That was really what I felt when Otis ended up with the possession of this stupid briefcase. I chuckled. I said, you really, sirs? Wasn't mad. Wasn't angry. Wasn't coming on the podcast screaming like we all were when Seth and Bray Wyatt had that ridiculous hell in the cell finish. But I do believe this will lead somewhere else. Now, final words on the main event. It was another pre-produced match, if you will, like Undertaker AJ Styles like John Cena, Bray Wyatt, I am okay with continuing this. I I am. They're all different in my book, you know, and I think everyone has a different view on it. As I've made clear, I was not a fan of Taker AJ the movie. I was a fan of just everything about the Firefly Funhouse match. This one was a little bit of a mix. It was okay. It was different. And I think they realized that just sticking a few ladders in the Performance Center and saying, all right, we're going to try a traditional Money in the Bank match wasn't going to work. Three hours in the performance center just doesn't work. They need to try things like this. So, you know, we hear all these rumors about baseball, how they're going to try different things in a shortened season, potentially. I think the WWE is doing the same thing where they're saying, we just got to try different things. It doesn't mean matches like this are here for good. But I think as we continue to roll on with this landscape, I really don't have a big issue with the WWE trying a couple of different things. Uh, as far as some of these matches are concerned, I thought the opening match was solid. What I, You know what I liked about the opening match? It was New Day against Lucha House Party, Miz and Morrison, and the Forgotten Sons. What I actually liked was because there were so many people around the ring, because you had a four-way tag team match. You got eight guys. You got the referee. You had Riker as uh, the third guy in uh, The Forgotten Sons, who wasn't in the match. You had so many voices that the awkwardness of no crowd was not as evident in this match. And it was a good match. That's the other thing. It was very entertaining. They gave you all those crazy spots. I don't love four-way tag team matches because 
kind of similar to making up the rules as they go along. There are no rules for that match. There are no rules. I mean, first of all, it's no TQ to begin with. So why do two guys have to start in the ring at the same time when it's a fatal four-way match? There's no DQ. Everybody should be in the ring. It should just be a free-for-all. There's no DQ. And this was the most awkward part of the match. And it was towards the end when Michael Cole was notifying us again, just in case you didn't realize that it was a no DQ match. And as he's saying that, I'm telling you, the words are coming out of his mouth. And that's when the referee was trying to send Riker backstage, saying, nope, you're out. Yeah, I'm throwing you out. I'm ejecting you from this match. And I'm thinking to myself, it's no DQ. What the hell does Riker have to listen for? There's no dis- there's no disqualification. And as Cole is saying it's no DQ, that's when the ref is exerting his authority to say, I'm going to throw the third guy from the Forgotten Sons backstage when you got no authority to do it because it's no DQ. Look, that could have happened either way and it wouldn't have been as worse. What made it worse was the timing of Cole reminding us it's no DQ as we're being shown a guy being thrown out. Timing was awful, but good match. Not surprised New Day defended. I think you go into a show like this, not only because it's the first show after Mania, but also because of the fact that there's no crowd and you just assume everybody's going to retain. There's not going to be any kind of title change, even with those mid-card titles. Same held true with the Bailey-Tamina match. Uh, They're clearly, at some point, going to break up Bailey and Sasha Banks, and I can't wait till they do so, but it's going to behoove them to just wait. A, drag it out a long time, and B, don't have that turn until we've got crowds back. How about the fact, and I admit, I'm not watching every Raw, I'm not watching every SmackDown. When I see that it's MVP against R-Truth, I thought I was in a time warp. What year is this? 2005? And then Lashley comes out, it turns into a squash match, a little bit of comedy. Is, Is MVP on the roster again now? I know he does that show, But is he actually wrestling? Then they give us the universal title match. This was interesting. And I stand by a prediction I made a couple of podcasts ago that Bray Wyatt is going to become the universal champion. I think they've realized the mistake they made having him drop it to Goldberg. Strowman is clearly a guy that just got the title because Roman Reigns wasn't going to fight at Mania. But once they continue to tell you it's Bray Wyatt, not the fiend Bray Wyatt, You know, this isn't where he's winning the title. And it gave him an out. It gave him an out. It gave them a way to kill time before The Fiend takes the title from him. And the way they're killing time is beating regular Bray Wyatt is not as big of a deal as beating Fiend Bray Wyatt. And this match was okay. There was some pretty good action. Um, You had the puppet showing up. You had the moment, and really it was the end, when Braun flirts with kind of joining Bray, puts the mask on, and then, yeah, I mean, I think we all knew what was coming here. I don't think any of us thought that all of a sudden the Universal Champion Bray Wyatt was going to, the Universal Champion Braun Strowman was going to say, yep, I'm with you. He takes it off, he stomps on it, power slams Bray. Cheap, easy way for Strowman to get a win and to continue the program. Bray is going to become the Fiend And maybe it is backlash. Maybe it's the next pay-per-view. I think he's taking the title off him. I stand by that. The McIntyre-Rollins match was good. It was good. The the problem I had going in is that clearly Drew was going to win, and that kind of sucks for Seth Rollins. He's now really into this heel role. 
They've changed his music. He's some kind of messiah, the Monday night messiah. It's a little over the top, but he's a clear heel. Just in time for there be, for there to be no crowds to boo him, obviously. I just knew going in it was going to suck that Rollins was going to have to lose. But what are you going to do? I mean, unless you have a schmaz ending, unless you DQ it, you know, Drew's going to beat him. But it was a really good match. I was actually surprised how good the match was. Yeah, I think Drew kicked out of one stomp, does the Claymore for the victory. But here's the weird part at the end. And we've seen WWE do this over the years. And the announcers always telegraph it. So McIntyre offers his handout to shake Seth Rollins' hand. Now, we don't have the drama of the crowd saying, boo, don't do it, or yeah, this is great. So you've got, you know, whatever it is, 30 seconds of Rollins thinking, am I going to shake his hand? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Hmm. 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 All right, fine, I'm going to shake his hand. I'm going to shake his hand. And the moment Seth shakes his hands, the announcers, I think it was, uh, what's his name? Uh, Corey Graves says, boy, that says a lot about Drew McIntyre. Right after a victory, he offers his hand out. What? It says a lot about Drew McIntyre. F that. It says a lot about Seth Rollins. What do you mean it says a lot about McIntyre? He won. It's easy to offer your hand out after you won. It's difficult. It takes more of a man to accept the handshake after you lost. So clearly this handshake thing is about, oh, Drew is so amazing. He's the new Roman Reigns. He's great. Everybody loves him. He's so nice. He's so sweet. B.S. That's not my reaction. My reaction is, what a douche. This guy won the match, and he's basically rubbing it in by putting his hand out. Meanwhile, what a man Seth Rollins is. What a guy. Guy just lost. And he's saying, you know what? I'm going to shake your hand. So maybe I'm the only guy that thinks this, but it kind of reminds me of Hulk Hogan and Macho Man. Hogan is trying to steal Elizabeth, and you're acting like the Macho Man's the bad guy? What are you talking about? Hogan clearly has lust in his eye, man. But they're telling us, oh no, Hulk, Hulk's the good guy. Macho's the bad guy. How about that crap at 1992 Royal Rumble? Hulk's the lovable guy, yet he's pulling Sid out of the ring? Sid should be ticked off. Sid Justice was screwed by Hulk Hogan. Yet, when Justice turns on Hogan at Saturday night's main event, boy, Sid's a bad guy. Why is Sid a bad guy? Sid's the one who got screwed by Hogan at Rumble 92. So, look, I don't have any hope that the WWE is going in this double swerve away where McIntyre is becoming the heel and Seth is being the face. I'm not even suggesting it. Here's all I'm saying. The face, the good guy, the guy who showed something is the loser who's agreeing to have his hand shook. That's who it is. Am I wrong here? When you win, it's easy to be nice. When you win, it's easy to say, ah, you know, that's a great job, young fellow. Let me give you a handshake. It's when you get your ass kicked. That's when we learn about you. When you get your butt kicked. I think I just went through all the matches. That was it. So they are going to continue with this formula because they already promoted backlashes on June 14th. Backlash, I think, has already been canceled in terms of people going to the arena. I could be wrong about that, but let's be honest. There's very little chance that June 14th backlash is in a regular arena. So the WWE has clearly told us this. 
over the last two months. We're almost at two months, by the way, of this quarantine life that we're living. Two months. The WWE has said, we are going to continue business as usual. We're going to do a three-hour Raw. We're going to do a two-hour SmackDown. We are going to continue all storylines. Let's go. The second thing they're telling us is we are going to incorporate new kinds of matches. We know we need to be creative. We know we're going to have to give you cinematic matches. We'll still give you wrestling. We'll still give you your, you know, regular wrestling matches, but we're going to incorporate other things. And that's going to be interesting to keep an eye on because I am now under the belief that when we get to backlash, we're going to see different kind of match. We're going to see another at least cinematic match. And maybe it's Bray. Maybe with Bray Wyatt becoming the fiend, they do something with him. Not the same kind of Firefly Funhouse as they had with Cena, but maybe some kind of dark, crazy match. And I'm on board. I am open-minded to it. Now, just because I'm on board doesn't mean I'm committing to like everything. I could still rip it. That's what we do. We're wrestling fans. We can do whatever the hell we want. But I do admit that I'm open to these new ideas because... Maybe some you'll hit, maybe some you won't. I am intrigued by the Undertaker five-part documentary series, but I'm not nearly as intrigued as pressing the stop button on this podcast and quickly going back into my bedroom with my wife and watching the Michael Jordan Last Dance documentary, which I'm about to do. On the show with Joe and I this week, we begin a brand new feature called The Sterling Five. Every day, we will play five John Sterling home run calls with player nicknames. We've collected all of them, at least all that we could find, 111 of them. And over the next few weeks, we will commemorate baseball, commemorate the Yankees, and commemorate John Sterling with some classic Yankee home run nickname calls. Plus, it's championship week in the Beningo Bracket of Pain. So hopefully you tune in. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Evan Roberts Podcast.